Our passage today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 4. We are in Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. With God's help, if you would turn your hearts together as we hear his word. And Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this glory, all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there is one ruler over them all, the devil, our spiritual adversary who comes to tempt the people of God and to draw us away from single-minded devotion to the Lord, just as he did here with the Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately before Jesus began his public ministry, he was thrown into this 40-day-long season of intense temptation by the devil in the wilderness. The passage that we are looking at, the passage that we have under consideration, highlights three episodes But the whole stretch of the way through, the whole stretch of those 40 days is depicted as one that was replete with temptation. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. It was only when the 40 days were over that the devil ended, the Bible says, every temptation. So there was a a consistent barrage of temptation, some of which we might think to ourselves would be the more 
garden variety kind of temptation that we might face on a day-to-day basis. And then there were these three especially intense, especially momentous occasions that were drawn out for our edification and our instruction. The first of which we find in verse 3, Jesus has just spent 40 days fasting. For 40 days, he ate nothing. And when they were ended, the Bible tells us he was hungry. Words that are not to be dismissed. In fact, they're especially important as we think about the life of Christ, as we think about his incarnation, as we consider what it was for him to be a man, as we think about the very beginning of his public ministry, because they disabuse us of this notion that in the incarnation, Jesus somehow floated above the trials and the hardships of life in a fallen world. He was not in some kind of transcendental state as he lived in his incarnate state upon this world. Luke could have just said Jesus ate nothing during those days, but he doesn't want us to draw any conclusions that might be unwarranted. He doesn't want us to think, well, Jesus was divine. This is really nothing to speak of. No, he was hungry. He was hungry. And a fast for Jesus Christ would have brought with it the same kind of attendant challenges that a fast for you or I would have brought with it. It resulted in the same kind of hunger pangs and exhaustion that it does for us. He would have been, as you can imagine at this point, after 40 days, incredibly weakened, totally emaciated, you might assume. He was hungry. He was famished. He was on the brink of starvation. The the scripture is putting on display his full humanity for us. Now, friends, we are on our best days, on days of feasting and fullness, with all of our wants supplied, vulnerable to all manner of temptation and sin. But consider Jesus here. Think about Christ. He is now in a state of severe privation. And so it's no surprise to find the devil coming to him in verse 3 saying, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Well, but there, there is a, a lesson here for us. The devil knows just when and just how to attack us. He is ever looking for chinks in the armor so to speak, weak spots in our lives, places where we are vulnerable, uh, seasons where we are susceptible to his suggestions, areas in our life where we have left the door open to his advances, even areas of legitimate need that he can use to exploit for his own purposes. And that's what we see him doing with the Savior here. He takes an area of legitimate need. Jesus is hungry. Jesus' stomach wanted to be filled. And the, the devil tries to use that as a point of entry in his life. He says, command this stone to become bread. And it appears to be a perfectly justifiable argument, doesn't it? It seems totally reasonable. 
on one level. And this is so often the way the advances of the devil work in our lives. Things seem so reasonable on the surface. That is so often the way temptation goes. Look at what you need. Look at what you deserve. Look at what God has left you lacking. Doesn't your flesh want to act? Doesn't your flesh want to act on that? In, in this particular case, he makes an appeal to uh, Jesus's sonship, to Christ's status as the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And it's not so much that Satan is actually casting doubt on the sonship of Christ here. uh, The devil knows perfectly well that Jesus is the the Son of God. The construction in the original here is a first-class condition. It could just as well be translated, because you are the Son of God, of God, or since this is true, go ahead. Go ahead, satisfy your hunger. Which raises the question for us why couldn't Jesus have done this? Why couldn't Jesus have turned a stone into bread? What would have been wrong with him satisfying his hunger this way? Well, the answer is found in Christ's response. What does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone. The first thing that we want to notice here is that there is something more than bread alone that is in view. After 40 days without food, just just mark this in your mind. After 40 days without food, Jesus' physical stomach might be totally empty, but his mind... His mind is still taken up with something more than physical sustenance. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 here. The context takes us back to the manna in the wilderness. And this is interesting because we're, we're talking about something that the Lord used to feed the Israelites natural, physical bellies. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2 says this, You shall remember the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. That's the irony of this first temptation and the passage, actually, that Jesus cites from. Jesus is hungry, and he talks about the physical bread that God fed his people with in the wilderness. But behind that manna, behind the physical bread, stood something more. Behind the manna, do you see it, church? Behind the manna was the very word of God. Behind what he was feeding his people with was the voice of the Father. It was the promise of God. And so when you boil everything down here, Israel didn't manage to make it into the promised land because they had manna or because they had the quail or because they had any of of the other means of supply they came to know. Those were just that. They were means 
Ultimately, fundamentally speaking, they were sustained, they were carried through because of God's attendance to his word. Because of God's own faithfulness. God fed them, he says, by his own mouth, so that they would know that his promises are true. That they're reliable. That not one word of his ever, ever, ever falls to the ground. You can depend on what God has said. You can trust in his word. And that's the bedrock conviction on which Jesus' faith is established here. That's where the eyes of our hearts are being drawn to by Christ's word. He is saying, my hope is in the faithfulness of God. My trust is in his good, his precious promises, in his guarantee that he has said he will order my steps according to his faithfulness, according to his divine counsel, which means I don't need to try to step outside of that. I don't need to try to make something happen in my life that is not of his will. I don't need to be anywhere else but where the Lord has placed me. Man does not live by bread alone. And you could just as well insert anything else there that you find yourself longing for. We live by the very mouth of God. For Christ to have exercised his divine power for the sake of temporal fulfillment would be to call into question the wisdom of God. It would be to call into question the goodness of the Lord's provision, the power of God, the graciousness of God, his care for the Lord. It would have been at the end of, of the day an expression of distrust. Let me take matters into my own hands. What's the call of God for us in seasons of affliction or testing or privation or suffering? It is to live according to the word of God. It is to place our trust in his promises, which are all yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not to take our desires or our wants or even those areas of legitimate need and make them ultimate to make demands of God and to try to turn the Lord into our own servant, but to instead to, to wait in trust and dependence upon him to be his servant, even if it means that we are in the wilderness like our Savior. Second, Satan gives Jesus this vision of worldwide rule. If you look at verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. Now notice, brothers and sisters, first of all, that Jesus does not challenge Satan's claim. He doesn't contest that claim of authority here. Satan says that a certain amount of authority had been delivered to him, which, by the way, belies the fact that he is in subjection to someone greater than him. He lets that slip. Isn't that wonderful? But the scriptures do affirm this truth, that the devil had been given a certain amount of authority in the world. And he is variously described in the Bible as the God of this world, the ruler of this world. First John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
The Apostle Paul described him as the prince of the power of the air. And so when Satan came to Christ, he possessed real authority and he he promised to give it all along with the splendor and the glory of the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. Now, what's the nature of this temptation? There are two main things we see here. First, the devil offered Christ a cheap substitute of what the father had already promised to the son. In Psalm chapter 2, the father says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Daniel 7 and verse 13, a vision of one like the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Satan promised to Christ what would have been an earthly passing kingdom. A temporary kingdom. But more than that, brothers and sisters, do you know what he offered? He offered a shortcut. He offered Jesus a shortcut. He held out a way to glory that wouldn't take Jesus through that path of suffering and death that had been ordained for him. In short, he said to Jesus, here is a way you can circumvent the trials and sufferings that the Father has ordained for you. Brothers and sisters, Satan does the same thing with us. The Bible says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans chapter 8. In Acts chapter 14, Paul echoes the very same thing. He does this just after he was stoned. In fact, in the city of Lystra, he rose up the next day and strengthening the souls of the disciples, he encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Is that your perspective of the Christian life? That through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. Glory, glory is coming. But first, there is the path of following the Savior. Suffering. Taking up our cross. It was through the cross Christ came to know glory. It was through the cross that resurrection life was attained. It was because of the cross that Jesus was able to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it's by patterning our lives after him, by taking up our cross, by following him, that we also discover life eternal, life everlasting. Satan is always saying to us, though, there is a way around that suffering. Let me give you a shortcut. Let me show you an easier way. But look at the price you have to pay. Look at the price you have to pay. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. That is the demonic lie that pummels our lives, our hearts, our minds in a thousand different ways as we strive toward that celestial city. There's an easier way to be had. There's a more comfortable road to be trod. There's another path to glory. Church, it's a lie. 
It's a lie. It is ultimately an empty promise. It will not result in glory. It will not bring everlasting life. How did Jesus Christ contend against this kind of contention, uh, uh, of temptation? Look at verse 8 again. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Do you see, friends, how this drives right to the very heart of the issue? This comes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to listen to what it says there. Deuteronomy 6, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Now keep reading. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off of the face of the earth. This is what comes to the mind of Jesus Christ at the temptation of the devil. This was no small compromise. This was no small compromise that could be tolerated. It was a matter of true and false worship. Nothing more and nothing less. It came right down to the exclusivity of worship, to the exclusivity of his allegiance to the Father. Church, that is how we need to think about every single temptation we ever face in life. That it is a matter of true and false worship. It is a matter of the exclusivity of my allegiance and my worship to the Father. It is no small compromise. Those are the kinds of terms we need to understand every devilish proposal that comes to our life. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus said, I am not going to bow my knee before another. God grant to us that same kind of ambition and spirit. Now in the third episode, we come to Jerusalem, and it's a setting that reminds us of the place where Jesus is going to spend the final hours of his life, a a final test as he prepares to offer up his life as a ransom for many. But now at the outset of his ministry, we come to the pinnacle of the temple. We don't know exactly where this is. Uh, Josephus mentions the height of the temple, though, and he describes it as, as being at a dizzying height. Uh, the kind of distance from the ground that would make you woozy if you looked down, the kind of distance that would, that would mean certain death if you were to take a spill from it. Well, the devil comes to Christ and he makes this suggestion in, in verse 9. He says, if you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Brothers and sisters, notice Satan's tactics here. You see what he's doing? Twice, the devil has been bested by Christ's knowledge of the scriptures, but the devil knows the Bible too. 
Satan knows the Bible. He knows it better than we do. You do realize that, don't you? And he says, two can play at this game. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember Psalm 91. You have a promise there, Jesus, don't you know? God has said, he'll look out for you. You do trust his word, don't you, Jesus? Now, in the original context, we do have this wonderful, glorious promise there that the Lord will protect his people from all manner of danger. This is that great psalm that begins, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. What better place to be than in the shadow of the Almighty? The psalmist revels in that. He revels in how he finds a refuge in a fortress in the Lord. He, 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 he talks about how because he has found the Lord to be his dwelling place, he has absolutely nothing to fear. God will even command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Well, Satan lights upon that precious truth and he misrepresents it. He misapplies it, and he does so willfully. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the the mere recitation of the word of God is no guarantee that you have an understanding of the mind of God or of his will for your life. We need to not only know God's word, but know how to interpret it and how to apply it properly. You need the spirit, you need the wisdom of God, you need the counsel of other godly brothers and sisters, you need scripture to interpret scripture, you need the whole counsel of God. Satan knows God's word, but he is also the father of lies, and that is a deadly combination. But let this be impressed upon your heart. He lies in very subversive, uh, pernicious kinds of ways. He takes what is true and he twists it. He uses it wrongly. Rarely, if ever, will the devil's advances appear to be just manifestly evil. Instead, he takes truth and he mixes it with error. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He makes suggestions to us. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you see that there's a a mixture of truth and error? Paul describes the devil's approach as schemes. Uh, He is described as the deceiver of the whole world. He knows how to manipulate God's word. One of the most remarkable things about this passage and uh, Satan's recitation of Psalm 91 is Satan knows exactly where to stop in his quotation of this psalm. He cites verses 11 and 12, but he stops just short of verse 13. You know what verse 13 says? You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Satan didn't bother to recite that part. That ancient serpent who is called the devil 
and Satan. He is cunning. He is crafty. We must not be ignorant of his devices. So Satan comes to Jesus with this text in hand at the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, in effect, why don't you go ahead and see if this is true? Why don't you go ahead and give this a shot? See if he will command his angels concerning you. What does Jesus say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, this comes right from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Originally, this is a a warning to Israel not to test the Lord uh, the same way that they had done at Massa. You remember how that was when they had grumbled against the Lord. They had said to him, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses struck that rock so that water came out. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, listen to this, is the Lord among us or not? This is what Jesus likens the devil's suggestion to, a demonic testing of the Lord that has at its root unbelief unbelief. Is God really with us or not? It's not faith at all. It's an attitude that demands of God that he prove himself before I'm willing to believe him. Jesus won't do that and neither must we. Paul says to the church at Corinth, we must not put Christ to the test. Where there is a lack of faith in our, in, in our lives where we recognize that within our hearts, the answer is not to test God, but to seek his face. It is to fix our eyes on his person, on his character, on his faithfulness, on the assuredness of his word, on his ways, to pray for grace, to trust him more, and he will help us if we look to him. Now, this was not the end of the devil's persecution and temptation of the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice what it says in verse 13. It says that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. Again, you remember the words of Uh, Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the devil was more crafty than any other animal that the Lord God had made. Brothers and sisters, you can be assured that the devil is looking for an opportune time in your life to tempt you, to draw you away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Are you aware of his devices in your life? Are you remaining vigilant in the fight against sin? Do you know, like Jesus knew, what the way of escape is right now in the particular temptations that you are facing in order that you might not be overtaken, in order that you might endure? God has provided for you a way of escape. Do you know what it is? Have you sought him? Just a few 
additional points of application we can draw from this text. I want to highlight three things. First and most importantly, Christ is our glorious, perfect, all-sufficient substitute and Savior. Christ Jesus is the faithful Son of God who withstood every temptation that he faced, that he might bring us to God. He endured the full onslaught of the devil's power for our sake, that he might be our substitute and redeemer. He is presented here in this passage as the true and the better Israel, dwelling in the wilderness in total unswerving devotion to God. Israel had manna and quail. Jesus ate nothing. Where Israel rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes forth in the power and fullness of the Spirit. Where Israel complains and fails and tests God, Christ wins the victory. One is faithless, the other is faithful. Praise God. Praise God for one who has faced the devil, who has faced the full onslaught of Satan's temptation, and who has emerged victorious, unscathed, faithful, even unto death. We have sinned. We have failed. We have succumbed to the passions of the flesh. We were once foolish and and disobedient, led astray. Led astray by passions and pleasures, Christ is faithful. He is our substitute. He is the faithful one, able to reconcile sinners to the Father. He came to destroy the works of the devil. The Bible says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Number two, Jesus demonstrates the way forward in battling temptation. Jesus demonstrates the way forward for us in battling temptation, not in the way that we sometimes say that we're struggling against sin when there's really no struggle going on in our lives, but in fighting the good fight of faith in a way that leads to true victory in our lives. Let me ask you this. How do you deal with temptation when it comes into your life? How do you contend against it? Three times, Jesus says, it is written. It is written. It is written. Three times, the devil comes to Jesus, and three times, Jesus pulls from the scripture, from the word of God. The scriptures are the primary resource that God has given us in the fight against sin. The weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You need the word of God in the fight against sin. Without it, you will never see victory. But with it, friends, God can and will transform and sanctify your life in ways that you can only imagine. Commit your life to the study of God's word. If you have failed, pick up where you left off and begin to plunge yourself into the study of the scriptures. Psalm 119 and verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
Blessed are you, O God, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The more you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, the fewer opportune times the devil will find in your life. To that we can add the fullness of the Spirit. This whole passage is framed by the words at the beginning that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was being led by the Spirit. And it's here out in the the harsh conditions of the wilderness that we find our Savior being tempted by the devil. You know, that, that might be something that we just need to pause on for a minute, that Jesus being led by the Spirit is brought to the wilderness. You have room in your theology for that, that you can be full of the Spirit, you can be being led by the Spirit and yet find yourself in the wilderness. It's there in the wilderness we find Jesus full of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. And yet those things do not mean for Christ the absence of temptation. What they do mean is power, power to overcome temptation. Christ's body is weak, and yet he's full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus resists temptation, not in the power of the flesh, but in relying upon the Spirit. It's in the wilderness. Just consider this, consider this, that Jesus knows fellowship with the Father, that he knows victory over sin, that he knows the hand of providence holding him, sustaining him. Consider that as you think about the the, the situations that you find yourself in today, as you consider the temptations that you are enduring at this moment. The path to victory over sin does not lie in a change of circumstances. It's found in trusting God's word. It's found in depending upon the fullness of the Spirit. Finally, number three, Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Oh, church, be encouraged by this. Be encouraged as you think about your life. Jesus can sympathize with you. Take whatever weakness you know right now. Take whatever temptation that is coming your way. Jesus can sympathize with you. Again, one of the wonderful ironies about this passage, and this is something that Luke does not record, but the other gospel writers do, is that the Father did send angels to come and to minister to Jesus according to his word. 
But those angels came not to shield Jesus from suffering and from affliction, but to carry him. To carry him and to sustain him through the fight. To sustain him through the pressures and trials and afflictions and weaknesses he was facing. Hebrews chapter 2 says that because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Brothers and sisters, again, that, that means you can take whatever it is that is tempting you today. In whatever area you are being tempted to go astray, whatever point of compromise that you are facing, whatever idol is beckoning you to bow down before it, whatever shortcut is calling out your name, you can take all of those things and you can run to Christ and you can find the grace that you need right now today. You can pray to God and know that your Savior is not detached. He is not removed from the troubles that you're facing. The risen Savior stands ready to meet you today with grace. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads before you, conscious, O God, of our failings, cognizant of how many times we have run to sin instead of away from it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to watch and pray that we might not enter into temptation. Lord, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, grant us the grace to resist the devil, that he might flee from us. I thank you, God, that there is no temptation that has overtaken us that's not common to man, that you are a faithful God, that you're, you're faithful both in not letting us be tempted beyond our ability, but also in providing a way of escape for us. So help us to discern those things. Lord, help us to lift up our eyes to you. God, to push away from trying to find resources within ourselves to fight against sin and instead to flee to Christ. More than anything, Lord, we, we praise you that in all of our failings and sin, Christ has become to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we make our boast in you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a gracious Redeeming God, we pray as we prepare our hearts for your table today that you would help us to examine ourselves as you have commanded us to do. Lord, that we would discern the body of Christ. Lord, that we would remember with grateful hearts the participation that we have by faith in his body and blood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.